Chapter 10 Institutionally Racist It was around this time that the murder of Stephen Lawrence changed policing in the UK forever. In the unlikely event that you don't know who Stephen Lawrence is, he was a young black man who was brutally murdered by a gang of white racists in Eltham in London in April 1993. I'm not going to say very much about the actual investigation itself for the following reasons. Firstly, I was never involved in it in any way, and I'm therefore not qualified to talk about it. Also, so much has already been said and written about it over the past 20 years that there's probably nothing more to add. And finally, it seems to me that everyone is allowed to have an opinion about these incidents, apart from the police officers, who are the ones who routinely have to actually deal with the fallout from chaotic and violent events unlike the vast majority of commentators who have never had to deal with such things and also have the luxury of many years of hindsight. The murder was horrific and the people who carried it out were abysmal criminal lowlife. Stephen Lawrence was a good lad from a good family with a very promising future and he was brutally murdered for no other reason than the colour of his skin and for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. There were all sorts of mistakes made in the investigation into his murder. Everything from the first response, the management of the crime scene and the follow-up inquiries that were conducted over many months and years. Undoubtedly, there was a clear need for an inquiry into the failings in the investigation so that lessons could be learned. However, in policing, there was and still is a profound, raw sense of unfairness. That the entire organisation, from top to bottom, had been damned because of a single, badly managed investigation that then became highly politicised. As a result, my colleagues and I collectively find ourselves in the position of having our entire organisation labelled as institutionally racist in the 1999 McPherson Report that was released after the inquiry into the murder. This clumsy accusation has been used again and again by the critics of policing to suggest that every police officer in the UK is a racist, something that could not be further from the truth. There were a great many positive things that needed to be changed and did change in policing in the years after the Stephen Lawrence inquiry. The professionalism with which serious investigations were dealt with, particularly murder investigations, improved beyond recognition. The actions that police took in the initial response to critical incidents, termed the golden hour, dramatically improved. The way that police dealt with bereaved families and how they communicated with witnesses and local communities radically changed for the better. However, I believe that from that time onwards, British policing lost its confidence and became a deeply fearful, risk-averse institution in which officers started to anticipate calamity around every corner, even when dealing with quite trivial incidents. Police managers had seen the way that anyone even loosely involved with the Stephen Lawrence case had been treated by the courts and by the media, and they became terrified of finding themselves in the same position. 
it was really shocking to all of us in policing at that time to have the organisation treated in this way. For many years afterwards, police officers were very nervous about dealing robustly with minority ethnic men who they knew or who they believed were involved in crime. I believe that this risk-averse culture in policing and the constant fear of accusations of racism helped to lay the foundations for the knife crime epidemic some years later that has tragically taken the lives of scores of young people. After the McPherson report, police officers find themselves, and still find themselves, in an impossible position in respect of issues of race in Britain. They are vilified if they stop and search or arrest too many minority ethnic offenders, but if they fail to deal robustly with those same offenders, they are vilified for tolerating crime committed against minority ethnic victims. So what does the average 23-year-old police officer do when he's confronted with the situation when policing our streets? Sometimes it's just easier to ignore things, because in the current climate, getting involved can end very badly for police officers. The subject of police racism was a constant issue throughout my time in the service, and I find it frustrating that even now, following the Black Lives Matter movement, and the death of George Floyd, there is still a routine perception that the UK police is institutionally racist. The Black Lives Matter movement tried to equate the UK police with the US police, which is just wrong and foolish in all sorts of ways. The way that policing is done in the UK could not be more different, and anyone who thinks that it's the same is totally deluded. Our US colleagues operate in an entirely different context. As a society, the United States is awash with legal and illegal firearms, and this has inevitably shaped the policing style. This situation has made US police officers deeply fearful about getting shot, and they therefore adopt a much more aggressive approach to members of the public. Whereas in the UK, Police officers patrol unarmed in over 90% of cases. To illustrate my point, the UK has one of the lowest rates of fatal shootings by police in the world, with a consistent level of 0.5 people killed by police per 10 million of the population. In the United States, the rate is 28 people per 10 million nearly 60 times more than the UK. To put this figure in a European context, the Dutch police kill five times more than their UK counterparts, the French police eight times more, and the Swedish police kill 12 times more of their citizens than the UK police. Without a doubt, Perceptions of policing and levels of trust in policing differ between communities. And the service has been working incredibly hard for many years to try to ensure that the police workforce better reflects the communities that they serve. Ethnic minority communities have much lower levels of trust in the police than white communities. However, the question I would ask is this. To what extent do lower levels of trust result from the actual words and actions of police officers? 
And to what extent is that a product of many years of negative media stereotyping of police officers as racists? The toxic and corrosive impact of this reporting should not be ignored. It's a lazy and generally false narrative, and it does no one any good to keep repeating that message. This is exacerbated by the self-appointed community activists who whip everyone up after incidents involving police. MPs such as Diane Abbott, or for those with longer memories, Bernie Grant, who was dubbed the High Priest of Conflict by Douglas Hurd when he was Home Secretary, repeatedly attack the police, undermine trust in ethnic minority communities and encourage a mindset of perpetual grievance and victimhood. It's hardly surprising that the police struggle to create a more diverse workforce when there are so many unhelpful voices undermining recruitment efforts. I've seen the organisation go to extraordinary lengths to demonstrate transparency and try to gain the trust of ethnic minority communities. However, time and again, all this hard work is undermined by a small number of vociferous individuals. The only conclusion that I can come to is that in the UK, there's something of a cottage industry that encourages a sense of grievance. This community of activists, quangos, advisors and so-called experts now provides a livelihood to people who have a vested interest in maintaining the status quo. Frankly, they will never be supportive of policing. It's not in their interest. Do the police sometimes get things terribly wrong? Yes, of course they do. Why? Because it's an organisation made up of human beings who make mistakes for all sorts of reasons. Usually these are honest mistakes, but some are inevitably made out of stupidity or malice. Are there still a small number of individuals in the police who have unacceptable attitudes towards ethnic minorities? Yes, there are. Why? Because you'll find that in every organisation and it's impossible to know what someone is thinking 24-7. There will always be a small number of covert racists in the police in the same way that there will be racist individuals in medicine, teaching, the church, politics and journalism. In 2009, Trevor Phillips, the Equalities and Human Rights Commission chief, stated in a speech marking 10 years since the Stephen Lawrence inquiry that the police had changed massively and that Britain was by far the best place in Europe to live if you're not white. Phillips went on to say, On balance, the positive changes provoked by Macpherson have outweighed the cost of the political turmoil. But does this mean that I believe that the Met, or any force for that matter, should be pilloried with the single blanket accusation of being institutionally racist? I don't think so. That would imply that nothing has changed. And yet, the relentlessly negative media narrative persists. Certain journalists listen only to ex-police officers with a specific agenda and an axe to grind. There's no balance. It's such a shame that they don't speak to black ex-police officers like ex-Met Inspector Chris Donaldson, who has talked about how he did not experience racism during his time in the Met, in an interview for the Trigonometry YouTube channel. They should also speak to Keith Fraser, 
When I interviewed my ex-colleague Keith, who is now the chair of the Youth Justice Board for England and Wales on my Tango Juliet Foxshot podcast, he described how he experienced no racism whatsoever in the Met, despite being posted to a predominantly white community in Barking and Dagenham in 1988. Keith was a young black man from Birmingham, landing in a part of London unused to seeing black people, never mind black police officers, and he received nothing but love and support from his colleagues. So why don't the media and journalists speak to people like Keith? I can only conclude that it's because many of them have an agenda, and they don't want to hear anything that challenges their thinking. I've been in the thick of it operationally for many years in a number of ranks in some of the busiest places in two different urban forces and I have never ever seen a police officer obviously pick on someone or treat them badly simply because of the colour of their skin. I've just never seen it. However, I've seen thousands of incidents involving confrontations with members of the public of all ethnic backgrounds many of them very violent indeed. And there was always a good reason that this had happened, and it was never because an officer just decided to target them because of their ethnicity. To an onlooker, or someone watching phone footage after the event, the sight of three or four white police officers trying to physically restrain a young black man in the street will often create the impression that they're acting oppressively. There are so many possible reasons why something like this might be happening. The man may have been pointed out by a recent victim of crime as a suspect. He may have been seen buying or dealing drugs and the officers had reasonable cause to conduct a search. He might be wanted on warrant or wanted for an offence and the police had been trying to track him down to arrest him. He might even be suffering from a serious mental illness and was therefore being detained for his own safety. But of course, all that passers-by see, and what is frequently then replayed on TV or on social media, is three or four white officers appearing to assault a young black man for no reason. There have also been a number of deaths in police custody involving black and minority ethnic members of the public that have been alleged to have resulted from police brutality. Every death is a terrible tragedy for a grieving family, and I certainly don't underestimate the damaging effect of these incidents. However, if you genuinely believe that the only possible explanation for those deaths is that the police murdered them, or at the very least set out to deliberately cause serious harm to that person, this is not the case. Many of these deaths result from a tragic combination of drug ingestion, alcohol intoxication, severe mental health issues and sometimes underlying health vulnerabilities. When you add a violent struggle into this mix it can sometimes end very tragically with a condition that is known as excited delirium or sudden death in restraint syndrome which can lead to cardiac arrest. There is a clear issue of disproportionality across the entire criminal justice system. Young black men in particular are significantly more likely to be stopped and searched, more likely to be arrested and charged, and more likely to be sent to prison. There is therefore a correspondingly disproportionate number of young black men who are likely to die in police custody for all sorts of reasons, 
that did not necessarily have anything to do with police misconduct. However, the question that everyone needs to ask here is, why is this the case? I'm not even going to try to answer that question comprehensively, because that is one for sociologists, psychologists, educationalists and economists. All that I will suggest is that there is an unbelievably complex situation that needs to be seen in a whole to be appreciated. We need to look at how social deprivation, low levels of educational attainment, poor housing and other factors such as drugs, addiction, broken families and poor mental health have all contributed to this situation. So what are the options for police in the following hypothetical yet typical situation? Police are called to a public place to deal with a disturbance. A man is pacing around in an agitated state, shouting incoherently at passers-by. On their arrival, the officers try to engage him in conversation to calm him down, but he continues to shout at and threaten people in the street. By his general demeanour, the officers assess that he's either under the influence of drugs or suffering from mental health issues and that he needs to be detained under Section 136 of the Mental Health Act for his own protection and for the protection of the public. He is a big, strong man and officers know from experience that they will need help, so they call for another unit to attend. On the arrival of the second car, the officers attempt to take the man by the arm and lead him to the car, but he violently resists. This man has a long history of severe mental health problems, several convictions for violent offences, and he's not been taking his medication. He has also recently smoked several rocks of crack cocaine. What should the officers do? Ignore the man and walk away? That's not an option. They must deal with the situation as carefully as they can, but the officers know that things can go horribly wrong in such a situation. I've experienced this many times, and believe me, it's not enjoyable. Professor Larry Sherman leads the Cambridge Centre for Evidence-Based Policing. Research he conducted in 2020 into UK homicides found that murder rates across the UK are between 200% and 800% higher in black communities than they are in white communities. Even more shockingly, in the 16 to 24 age group, young black men are 24 times more likely to be victims of homicide than white men of the same age. Sadly, the majority of these victims will be killed by other young black men. It is therefore clear to me why young black men are disproportionately impacted by police use of stop and search, and I have no doubt that many young lives have needlessly been lost as a result of politicians undermining the use of this tactic by police. Indeed, rather unbelievably, Sadiq Khan pledged to do everything in my power to cut stop and search when he was campaigning to be Mayor of London in 2015. By 2018, in the face of spiralling numbers of fatal stabbings in London, he pledged a significant increase in stop and search as a vital tool for police to keep our communities safe. However, by November 2020, he again pledged to overhaul 
the disproportionate use of stop and search and the way that it was affecting black Londoners. A typical example of shameless political opportunism and hypocrisy that has ended up costing lives. Will anyone ever hold politicians responsible for their recklessness? Will they ever get dragged through the courts the way that police officers regularly do when something goes wrong? I definitely won't hold my breath on that ever happening. Many police officers are now talking openly about never stopping and searching people, particularly minority ethnic suspects, because it simply isn't worth the hassle. The police obviously can't ignore criminality because that would be a disaster and many lives would be lost. Nonetheless, I believe that if this nonsense persists, there's a real possibility of just that happening. There needs to be a more open and honest discourse about this issue and an acknowledgement that for all sorts of complex reasons, young minority ethnic men in some of our major cities are disproportionately both victims and perpetrators of violent crime. The police can either deal with the situation they find themselves in, or they can ignore them. What should they do? The assertion that the British police are a bunch of racists shows no signs of going away. I've always found it deeply offensive to have the institution that I worked for labelled in this way. I believe that many of the people who continue to make this claim have an ideological agenda that is at odds with the harsh realities that police officers and many other public servants have to deal with. They're not interested in hearing the side of the police or considering other explanations because they don't fit their one-sided narrative. Most senior police officers are too timid to challenge this properly, preferring to throw their own people under the bus rather than say it how it is. However, one thing that's clear to me is that by continuing this narrative, police critics are condemning many, many more young black men to violent deaths before their lives have even started.